Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please, pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I have found yet another heart-centered leader. I know you find that hard, but I'm always searching and looking and connecting. And there's, there's these little glimpses of serendipitous moments. And I think that's how David Dressler found me and wanted to be on the show. And I want to read you a little bit of his bio because I love the way he writes. I can already tell he has a great sense of humor. This is how he describes himself. As a young buck in the luxury hospitality business, I cut my teeth at the Four Seasons Hotel and Resort, working every conceivable management job and building a career while traveling the country. There's a little bit of innovation there, if you can't already tell. He got restless and he felt a little bit of burnout, but deep inside of him, he always had this entrepreneurial itch. So he quickly ejected himself from his executive career, and he landed up taking a job as a pool server at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he raised a million dollars to open his first Tender Greens restaurant, a concept that had never been tried in an industry with a 90% failure rate. So what a fun intro and what a great conversation this is going to be. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. It's great to be here. I always love reading bios and and when people want to be on the show. And I I didn't look at your picture first. I covered your picture and I thought I want to read. And then I'm going to take my hand off and look at the picture. And I was like, we got to have him on the show. This is a great story. You talk about scaling a heart-centered brand, which is everything that I love to talk about. It's in my being. It is my brand. So my first leadership question for you is, Share with us the backstory about how the book 10 Years came about. And I'm going to hold off on another question that I'm going to delay for a minute because I want to see, I kind of wanted to do a two-part to question one, but I want to see how much you share. Serving drinks at a pool, raising capital, capital, having a conversation, and then writing this book. Give us a little backstory and insight to how this all came together. All right. So like you quoted me, I was the poster child for career advancement, but I was also living my own sort of imposter syndrome, going up the ranks in, in the hotel business, really wanting to be the youngest this or the first to do this, and not really asking myself too many questions about what I really, truly wanted. And uh, I came to a burnout place, which was partly my own fault, partly because I wasn't asking for help because I was too busy trying to look good. Uh, But also because I I did have an entrepreneurial itch. I did have a desire to become captain of my own destiny at some point. Definitely afraid of the idea, but really wanting to 
know what that would feel like. And I was looking up the food chain at my bosses and realizing that while I liked the idea of the fat paycheck and the beautiful office, I didn't necessarily like what they did for a living. Not from a moral perspective, just what they became more and more involved with take them, took them further and further away from what I loved about the hospitality business, namely being with the customer and being with the team members. The job up the line was more about owner relations and um, sales and you know, nothing that was really interesting to me. So that crispiness, that burnout uh, sent me into a place of feeling like I, I need to have some sort of exit strategy. And that came uh, when I was headhunted to a hotel in Santa Monica, California, where I, where I worked as the director of operations for food and beverage. And it just so happens that um, a guy that was working there when I got there was within six months of age of me and feeling the same. And then I hired an executive chef who also very uh, quickly revealed that he was feeling the same way. And together, the three of us plotted our departure, put us in like a secret club of three, three dudes who wanted to do something on their own. And it gave us a lot of purpose and a lot of excitement. We worked together for a bunch of time. We worked well together. We were not friends per se, but we had a, we had a, a combined purpose to get out and to go and do our thing. And we did that. And, uh, and then it became impossible to have an executive job and fundraise to raise the money to, to open our first restaurant. And so we, um, I was the first to jump ship, got a job, like you said, at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. And about two years later, we'd raised enough money for all three of us to actually sign a lease, signed a lease on our first spot. Two years later, opened the next one and then the next and the next and got to about 100 million in revenue, 30 restaurants on both coasts, up and down the California coastline, um, 1,700 employees, 50 at our home office, and always deep in this beautiful heart-centered culture, which um, which I'm sure we'll talk about. What I love about your answer is I get to see your face in the expression, but just the rawness and the humility of owning imposter syndrome. And I shared a little bit with you before we started the interview, you know, you call burnout that crispiness. It's such an important message. And to land up in a space with two other people in the same space at the same time, that's serendipitous. That's, that's pure alignment right there. There are no accidents. They're, right. And, you know, serving drinks, <laughs> poolside and raising capital, like that's a story in itself. And it's a testament to your heart centeredness. And, you know, heart centered leadership is not new. Relationship leadership is not new. And some people just do it so well. And you've definitely done it well. And look where it's taken you. So congratulations on all your success. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about your conversation with the chef, but I'll, I'll delay that question. My second question has permanent residency on the show. And I've asked over 175 leaders this question. Share with us what imperfections that David brings to his heart-centered leadership. Uh, the imperfections are many. This is a, um, an important ongoing lesson for me. I love things very intensely. I don't always have the same level of commitment around that from others as I feel I have. 
And as a result, I can get disappointed. I can get resentful. I can get judgmental. And so in the beginning, early stages of Tender Greens, when we were very intense and very busy in, in our restaurants, I became known as Mr. Wolf from the Tarantino movie uh, because I was very, very intense about being driven towards some level of excellence or commitment, or but not necessarily always so aware that everybody has the right to a bad day or that um, not everybody gets what I'm after. And that rather than sit back and expect somebody to understand, I need to do a better job of explaining so that my message can be understood in ways that make sense to my team members. And also, I need to find the joy in what they're doing, maybe when it's not living up to my expectations, but it's pretty great anyway, and use use those moments as learning and development moments rather than moments of criticism. I love the tenderness of that. And, you know, sometimes it's taking the excitement or the intentness and, and matching it with the behavior. And that's a really good one. I don't think anyone's ever shared that kind of framing around that. And has that led you to enjoy the joy in this wonderful journey of life when expectations are are lowered and, and you kind of live in the now and remove the emotion and, and the intensity? Did did that name eventually leave you? Yeah, nobody calls me Mr. Wolf anymore. And since the time of the early days of my company, I also have two children now who are a constant source of reminder to me Mm -hmm. to find the joy in moments and to find the way to be present uh, and to meet them where they're at. And I'm not always perfect at it, but I have a lot more fun doing it. Well, you're on the right show because everybody on this show, including me, is imperfect. And when we bask in that, there's just all kinds of wonder and magic to be found and and children are good. They are, they keep us on our toes and, and they remind us of the innocence that we once had no that we, uh, we lose sometimes, I think as adults with work experience or entrepreneurship or schooling or lots of different ways that that can happen. So that's a fun place is to always be hanging out with young children. The cool thing about that, Deb, is that um, it's actually much I'll speak for myself. I have way more fun when I join them rather than have them join me. It's way more fun for all of us, way more um, enriching, way more satisfying, way more belly laughs when the rules are less important than the fun. Who doesn't like something that's spontaneous? Maybe an adult who hasn't adapted to embracing change, maybe, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. I want to talk to you about the name of the restaurant. Uh, Just so you know, I'm a big foodie. I have lots of friends who are from fork to table, the organic movement. Uh, You're from Canada. So, so, you know, we, we love that very much up here. Lived on a farm as a kid. Where did the name Tender Green come from? And what even pulled you into that industry after you left school? Was that was it a person? Was it a conversation? Share with us a little bit of how that all landed. Which would you like first? Your choice. Let's be spontaneous. Okay, so um, I'll go back to me first and then get to Tender Green. So um, I actually grew up spending my summers in the Adirondack Mountains of New York State. 
my mom uh, was a single mom, raised two kids and had three jobs. And so summer vacation was not a time for her to just hang out with two kids that were out of school. She had to, she had to work. As a result, I went off to my aunt and uncle's hotel in upstate New York to help out and to have a summer. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of tongue in cheek refer that to refer that and refer to those times as indentured servitude, but you know, there's a lot of, lot to do in a, in a little 50 room hotel. So, um, I carried bags. I, um, I poured coffee. I rented the boats. I washed the boats. I went to the store with my uncle, you know, whatever had to be done, got done. And other members of my family older than me had gone through the same thing. They owned that hotel for over 50 years. So, uh, everybody went through that as a summer occupation. Two of my uncles went into the hotel business after that, went and studied in Europe, uh, built beautiful careers that I admired. So when it became time for me to ask myself what I wanted to do, I went to school in Switzerland, went to a four-year program in Lausanne, learned a trade, learned hospitality management, and then went and built my career. Fast forward to Shutters on the Beach, I meet my two partners and both of them chefs and uh, all three of us foodies. And a menu descriptor that we often used in writing uh, dinner menus was tender greens. This idea of these beautiful young lettuces or beautiful wilted young greens that, that were sautéed as a lovely sort of way of saying, a different way of saying salad or a different way of saying something beautiful that's fresh out of the ground. And that's where the, the, the name came from. And I think when we first started writing our business plan, it was Tender Greens Cafe, and then we just left it off. But there is something beautiful about the word tender, not just in terms of a, a young leaf, but just in terms of an attitude towards something to be tender. And so um, that's where it was. Our, our original logo was, a, was a, an arugula leaf, and that arugula leaf had three sort of mini leaves to it, to the one leaf. And they represented the three of us as partners, as founders. And so there was always some sense of, of beauty to the idea of tender greens as not just a name for a brand, but sort of a feeling to a brand. And as a result, well, maybe not as a result, but maybe the food and the service and the sense of, uh, of our team's attitude made people feel early on and still to this day, like that was a place where they could nourish not just their bellies, but also their souls a little bit. The food was that kind of food. Like if you, if you made something delicious at home, that was your kid's favorite food and they were just so enjoying it. Or if you went over to your friend's house because you loved what they cooked and then they made you this thing that they were proud to, to serve and that you were delighted to eat. Uh, that the music that was playing in the restaurant was the kind of music that you wanted to listen to. It made you feel like, this is good. Those kinds of special attributes to the brand. And it wasn't necessarily so at the very onset that we thought, oh yeah, tender, but that's who we are. And that's what it all became. And I think there was a lot of like cohesion of the brand as a result. Well, and you alluded, you know, it's how you scaled your heart-centered brand and the three of you being heart-centered and having a vision. And it leads me to my last leadership question. I love the title of chapter one of your book. We put the pin in the map and just some of the terms you're, you're not going to judge anybody, but you're going to nudge somebody just all these little nuances. But how did you feel when you talked to the one chef 
and you asked him, where do you want to be in five years? And he had the trust and rapport with you to say, David, I'd like to have a private conversation. Weave us through that moment and talk about how you put the pin in the map. What does that mean to you? First of all, that story at the beginning of the book is um, is about my partner, Eric, and I uh, meeting to, uh, to have a drink and to do his five-year review or his year review. And, you know, you're the, I'm, I'm the boss. I invite him to go to a drink so we can talk about him. And I, my heart's not really in this. I like him very much. He and I have seen each other socially. We're not necessarily friends, but we work really well together. But my feeling of being his boss is secondary to my feeling of, I just want to not be the boss at this place anymore. And I want to go out and do something. Be that as it may, I have a job to do. So we, we go out. At the end of the meeting, I have to ask that question, that perfunctory management, where do you see yourself down the road kind of thing? And that's where he's courageous enough, as you say, to, to say, let's stop tape here and let's, let's have a conversation. What he's enrolling me in is this loose outline of a business opportunity for us to go and do stuff. And he's recognizing that he wants a partner like me that's good at different things than he's good at. And he's going out on a limb and courageous enough to say, hey, I want you to do this with me. And of course, I'm hearing it thinking, this is the best thing I've ever heard. This sounds great. And, and while there's a lot to do to get us ready to go out to market with it, this is sort of the answer to my prayer. And why? Because like him, I would not have been courageous enough to do it on my own. There is strength in numbers. And the three of us going out, we, we'd probably still be in the hotel business if we hadn't had that conversation. Well, maybe not. But I guess the point is that uh, there was strength in numbers and we could rally together and get behind something that put us in this great place of unity around um, taking the next big step away from working for the man, so to speak. So that was the conversation. And, you know, we immediately went to work and, and the, the vision for, for our restaurant company was never about, well, let's just open one restaurant and see what happens. We were going to open a bunch of them. When we incorporated in 2004, we called our company TYP Restaurant Group. That stood for 10-Year Plan. As you pointed out, I just wrote a book with my partner called 10-Year Plan. The first combination of the safe in our first restaurant was 10, 3, 30, 10 years, three guys, 30 restaurants. And so there was a, a high degree of intentionality in creating this, not just for ourselves, not just for the investors who would write checks to see us get open, but also to the team members who were going to join us and become our, our family, um, that we were all in this together, that there was a 10-year commitment to seeing us through. And that informed a lot of what we did as an organization. This wasn't about making a quick buck. This wasn't about maximizing shareholder return in the short term. It was about building a company of substance for the long term. And I think that's the, sort of the argument in the book is to stand for something, get clear on what that is, and go. And that's putting a pin in the map, right? If you, if you go on a trip, you put the pin in the map to where you want to go, and you know also where the pin in the map is that where, where you're starting. That starting point of commitment, of foundation, of the stuff is in the car, there's snacks in the car, the gas tank is full, I know where I'm going Everybody in the car is aligned with where we're going. We're on our way. 
And then there's that future pin in the map or that destination point being clear where we're going and what we want it to look like when we get there. Somebody told that story of um, you leave Atlanta and your destination, your desired destination is to New York, but you're heading south. You're, you're not, <laughs> not going to get there. So the clarity of, of putting a pin in the map is really getting clear on what's your starting point and what's your destination. And our destination was to build a company of substance, to build a company of, of purpose-driven intention, to be proud of what we had created for our shareholders, for our guests, and for most importantly, for our team members, to create as much opportunity to take as many people on the ride as, as we could with us, to make win-win outcomes for everybody, the the farmers, the artisans, the bakers, the guy that picks up the dirty towels, you know, that everybody would feel like, oh, wow, I, I love this company. And as a result, our original mission statement was restaurants people really love. And two things about that, I, I guess, Deb, I'll share with you, because I think it relates to this conversation that we're having. One is the word really in restaurants people really love. Really meaning we, we bandy about the word love quite a bit. I love those new shoes. I love, you know, I love things that aren't important, but to really love something is, is an act of ownership. And so from that perspective, that mission statement said, I want, we, the founders of Tender Greens want people to love, really love Tender Greens. Like it's something important to them. Best job I ever had kind of a thing. And then secondly, the word people, which it doesn't say customers. It doesn't say team members. It says people. And, and from, from our perspective, that was everybody who came in contact with the brand, the team members, the shareholders, certainly, but also the guests and every artisan, every farmer, everybody who sold us something, the bank and anybody would say, yeah, we, we really love working with these guys. Because you didn't take for granted the people. You honored the people. And like you said, love is something that's in your languaging, in your mission statement. It's part of your constitution. But I love right down to the combination of the safe. 10 years, three guys, 30 restaurants. And you did it. Yeah. Except we did it in nine. Yeah. I was just going to, I, well, I didn't want to take away the climax of the book. I was going <laughs> to save that. So there's the, uh, <laughs> there's the spoiler alert. You did it in nine. I think we did it in nine because of the degree of intentionality that went into it. Could have taken 11. You know, the word intention for me, I had a mentor back in my late twenties and he said, pick a word every year. And I've been doing it for a long, long time. Cause I'm in my fifties now. And my word for 2022 is intention. And I'm also a yoga teacher. And when you take the Sanskrit version of that beautiful language and that word intention, the word is Sanskrit. And when you take the Sanskrit version of intention, it's called Sankalpa. It doesn't matter how you say it or, or within whatever language, but when you get on that yoga mat and you set your intention for you, it could be sitting in your office. It could be sitting in your car. The point is the environment doesn't matter. It's, it's that marriage, that intersectionality of cognition, emotion, belief, passion, people wrapped around heart-centered leadership 
And you just saw the pin on the map, like you so eloquently talked about five minutes ago. Everybody was in the car, you and the two chefs, and no one wanted to do it on their own. And you knew collectively, collective growth, as I like to call it, you were all in the car and you knew where that pin was on the map. And none of you had judgment because you were there to have each other's back and do that gentle nudge. I just, I love the nuance about that. So kudos to you. A year ahead of schedule. Is there any overachievers in this trio? Not a one. (laughs) I love it. All right. I'm going to switch to my fab four. My first question is, tell us something that we don't know about David. So my my dad, my dad, among other uh, talents, was a harmonica player. He always encouraged me to uh, learn to play a musical instrument, and I never took him up on it. And so uh, this year, my, my, my daughter at the start of the pandemic started playing electric guitar and she's doing pretty well. And she always wants me to play with her, but of course I don't play an instrument. So I'm committed to learning blues guitar by the summer. And so, uh, sorry, blues harmonica by the summer. So I've got my harmonica, I've got my YouTube videos and I'm learning to play. So that's exciting because then my daughter and I get to be in a blues band. And she's probably going to teach your dad a few things, which is really, really cool. No doubt. I'm sure you'll find a YouTube video of Steven Tyler from Aerosmith playing the harmonica that will probably give you lots of visual instruction. What a cool, what a cool story. I love that. Okay. Second question, share with me a book that you've read. It doesn't matter when in your life that was really impactful. And if you can remember the title and the author, that would be great. But tell us why it was impactful for you. Oh, wow. Okay, so um, so this is the book that comes to immediately to mind. And um, it's called Wisdom at Work. And it's uh, written by Chip Conley. And if you don't know it, it's a must read for anybody transitioning from one mountain to the next. So when I came to this place of stepping away from the company that I'd created, 2019, I had been in the planning of it for a year and a half. I had hired my replacement. I had magnanimously turned my office over to her. I watched as she began to have meetings in my office behind closed doors with a glass door, looking at my team meeting with their new boss and feeling very suddenly left out and alone and wondering what my purpose was. And, uh, Knowing that retirement was not going to be in the cards for me, uh, I began to soul search about what I wanted to do next. I decided to look at the things that I liked best about what I had been doing in my career. And the best part of my job was helping people, was supporting people, was having conversations with people to help them find their inner wisdom around whatever they were facing. And so then it came time to step away. And I think I underestimated the level of decompression that would be required after stepping away from the kind of pushing an elephant up a mountain that I had been doing. And also the sadness that I would feel, the sense of loss that I would feel. And so uh, somebody recommended that book, Wisdom at Work. And I began listening to it on tape as I was running. I started, uh, I began running. I've always been a runner, but I I was running a lot because I didn't have a day job to go to. And this book is about the transition from sage on the stage to guide on the side. It's the story of, um, of how he, luxury hotel guy, 
retires from his company, sells his company, and ends up as an advisor uh, to the guys at Airbnb, to the young mavericks who are you know, starting out. It's full of a, a ton of wisdom around that feeling of having your tush on two chairs, of what's next, of imposter syndrome, of not being feeling like you're fully realized, and of, uh, of really looking at the strengths of what you have accomplished and using that in service of others. It was a magnificent read at a really, really important time when I needed it. I love that. It's a great book. I haven't had anybody say that book yet on the show. So that's quite serendipitous for me. Okay, third question. I'm going to grant you dinner with a leader that you would love to sit with. Who is that leader? Of course, you're probably going to take them to one of your restaurants or her. And who is it? And what's the conversation? I know this isn't going to be maybe what you are looking for, but Truthfully, if I had the chance to have dinner with a leader right now at this particular time in my life, it would be my dad. He passed in 2001. He didn't see any of Tender Greens, didn't remember my children. He missed a lot of my growing up. And um, I think to sit and have a great meal in a really nice restaurant with him and have me one plan that for him as a gift to to sit and talk about everything that's happened over the last little while three to be able to maybe get his take on some of the things that happened and four to pick up the tab at the end of the meal would have been just an awesome experience it would be an awesome experience and i am i couldn't think of anybody else that i'd rather be able to hit up with some ideas because you know when we started this conversation i said one of the things that i own is that when I got stuck in my job, it was because I wasn't asked, willing to ask for help. And I don't know that I asked him for a lot of guidance growing up. So it would be nice to be able to see what he has to say. Well, this will be a pleasant surprise for you. I've, I've had that answer several times by several leaders. And you are in good company. It's been a parent, a grandparent, an uncle. You had a special relationship with your uncle at the hotel, who I think really had imparted a little bit of where your leadership journey started and, and come to fruition, which is a really nice conversation. We never know where those childhood experiences are going to take us. So I also lost my dad at a young age. So when you just said that so beautifully from your heart, I'd love to have a meal with my dad because I started my company three years after he passed. I did name my company after him and I do talk to him a lot. Uh, Often when I ask for advice or a question, I look down and I always find dimes. And just the other day, I have actually five dimes on the base of my microphone here. The other day I was talking to my dad, I was out for a walk and I looked down there was five dimes. And I was like, okay, I think I'm getting a, like, that's like, you're getting a time, like five exit. Like you got my approval. I always get one, but last week I got five. So I decided to put them on the base of my microphone. So just a little serendipitous moment. You know, Deb, how you have those um, favorites on your phone, the the screen that shows Mm -hmm. the people that you call most. I, I have my dad on my favorites just as a reminder that I can, you know, 
metaphorically push the button at any time to talk to him. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I have, I still have a voicemail on an old, old answering machine that I just don't want to get rid of because that's the last that I have to keep, Mm -hmm. you know, that voice alive. So we all have those remnants in our heart. That's beautiful. I am so glad our paths crossed, David. And I, before I close out the show with my last question, I just want to say that I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability today on the show. And I love when leaders share, you know, people think because you get to a certain level in your business or they hear how much you raised in capital or what your plan was, or you did it ahead of time. They forget that they're still feeling thoughts and emotions. And just because you achieve something doesn't mean that imposter syndrome doesn't show up. So when leaders, you know, kind of put their heart on their sleeve, I'm always open and and welcome that type of conversation. So thank you for sharing your time and your story with us today and a little bit of your heart. I'm, I'm super grateful. Me too. Thank you. This has been really, really, really sweet. So I'm going to close out the show by asking you to finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? The belief and commitment that it can be everything that we want it to be, that it doesn't have to be one way or another, but that connection ultimately is what drives everything best. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.